Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are here with episode 57, the big 5-7. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a prime number? Probably. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to say it is. Seems like one. Should be one. Let's see, because you can't divide it in half. So, I don't know. There's probably a trick or a rule that you can use to determine prime numbers quickly, but I don't know them. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. I'm I'm just like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> as soon as you say prime number, I'm just like, my brain turns off. Your eyes glaze over. Yeah. I'm like, I could tell you what 57 is in numerology. I could tell you what it is in Roman numerals. <laughs> no, probably not. I would get it wrong. I think V is 50. So it would probably be VVII. No, because it gets more complicated when you get into... I don't know, man. I'm... <laughs> oh, it's L. L That's is 50. Yeah. So it's L-V-I-I instead of V-V-I-I. Yeah. Once you okay. get to the bigger numbers, then you start adding letters and all logic is lost. That's right. I messed up the 5 and the 50. So that... L-V-I-I. That's why years for movies are like M-L-C-Q L-M-N-O-P. <laughs> You know what, though? Prime numbers are sometimes tied to paranormal stuff. And guess what? This movie is also about the paranormal. That, that is true. And yes. that's my left-handed segue into the movie that we're watching today, <laughs> which is 2017's Terrified by Damien Rugnat. And I kept saying last episode, uh, at the end of episode 56, that it was a Spanish film. So it's a Spanish language film, but I do want to correct myself. Both this movie, Terrified, and When Evil Lurks are both actually set in Argentina. Yes. So I was incorrect about the country of origin. Spanish language is spoken in the movies, but they're set in Argentina. So South American setting of both of those movies. So I just wanted to like quickly correct myself on that. And also mention that that is the same director. Like I had read a bunch of stuff that was like, Oh, you know, When Evil Lurks definitely gave me terrified vibes. And I was like, okay, cool. I can get down with that. And then come to find out immediately after we were done recording last time, it is the same director. Yes. So. Yeah. And if you saw Satanic Hispanics last year, which was a really cool anthology horror film focusing on horror creators from Latin America, Damien Rugna also directed a segment in that yeah, so definitely want to give him props for all of his work because I messed up last time. IMDb was not my friend. <laughs> but this movie, so it came out, it was a Shudder original, actually, and it came out in 2017. It kind of got slept on as Shudder originals at the time probably were likely to do because in 2017, not everybody had really gotten on the Shudder train yet. It didn't debut on Shutter till 2018. Okay, um, it made its 2017 debut in October at the Morbido Fest, which is a horror film festival in Mexico. Oh, okay. So this is yet another one of these examples. We're seeing this time and time again with indie films, where you get a festival debut first, and then it either gets a theatrical 
or Shutter picks it up. Now we're seeing kind of a both. Like mm-hmm. it gets a festival debut, Shutter picks it up, puts it in the theaters for at least a week or two, and then they put it on the streaming service. But I don't recall in twenty. 17 and 18 if Shudder was doing theatrical stuff. I can't remember if I'm being quite honest. I don't want to say emphatically one way or the other. I don't remember that. And it does say specifically that this came out at Morbido and then it came out again at Fantastic Fest. Okay. And then it says in October it had an internet debut. Okay. So I don't think so. I want to say that the debuts and stuff that they were doing where they were like showing movies in the theater didn't happen until late 2019 or early 2020 because remember we saw that weird movie about plants either right after the pandemic started and nobody was there or right before the pandemic started and it was like one of the last movies we saw before the big shutdown the one where like the plants would try and kill you so they try to play like the really loud sounds like the tones oh god yes I don't remember the name of it, but it about gave me a migraine. Yeah. I think that that one was a Shutter original. I could be wrong, but yeah, it, I, I think know it was exactly the movie you're talking about. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it gave me a migraine too. It was like the throbbing noise. It was like, okay, this is exactly what it's like to have a migraine. No thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That movie was a. Yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Which would make sense. Now, this is my headcanon, so this could totally be wrong. But my thought is that Joe Bob comes back. Everybody gets like on the shutter train. They make a ton of money. And that was before, that was like 2018, 2019 when he had his first specials and stuff. And then he got called up for that full season. So in my head, they're making money like 2018, 2019. That's when they start doing film like debuts in the theater. That would be right. Because I think the first last drive-in where Joe Bob like wrecked the internet was either early 19 or like midway through 19. Right, right. Because the first full season ended up being in 2020 during the pandemic. And thank God for that. Right. I was seeing that movies as early as 2016 got picked up as Shutter Originals. I don't know if that meant that they were being seen shown in theaters, but they've been picking stuff up since 2016. Like 31 is technically a Shutter original now. Which did get a theatrical, but then that's Rob Zombie. So I don't know what the situation there would be. And there's, there were a lot of foreign films that were getting picked up as Shutter originals. I think this fell into that camp, like Japanese horror movies, One Take of the Dead. That was actually from 2019. It got picked up as a Shutter original. Well, I think the other thing we have to consider here, you know, is, hi, we're in Ohio. We're in the Midwest. We don't get all the things right. all the time. Like, for as many of the, like, Shutter originals and limited horror films, you know, that only get those one weekend runs as we are getting now, I can still count numerous films that don't come anywhere within driving distance to us. You right. know, Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. Mm-hmm. One place near us got it for a one night engagement. Oh, geez. You know, like an hour away from us. Yeah. But otherwise, it was nowhere near here. Yeah. And the other thing is like studios are being really gross about the way that indie theaters are allowed to show their films where they'll be like, oh, you want to show this Disney movie? Well, it has to get top billing for three weeks in a row. And if you only have one theater 
Well, that's all you can show. I guess you're going to show this Disney movie and like, hopefully it's a good one. And it's so expensive to license it that, you know, you can't afford to like pay for another license at the same time. So it really is rough. And we also have this huge explosion of indie films in general that aren't indie horror movies. Not to say that there aren't a ton of those as well, but indie horror movies, especially queer movies, um, movies with like a queer director or centered around queer characters. And those are, you know, taking front and center billing, which deservedly so, like, let's make space for queer cinema. But at the same time, there's only so many screens. Yeah. And especially when you live in a smaller community, you know, we are very lucky that we have two art house theaters and then a couple of other indies that's still not a lot of screens and not a lot of space for as many indie films as there are out there you know our i would say kind of most successful most prominent indie theater has two screens Mm -hmm. and everybody else just has one so there's just only enough space and i will say like not everybody because there is so much and because indie theaters are largely nonprofit these days, not exclusively, they have to really go with what the people supporting them are going to go see. So if your, you know, donor base is more into a certain type of indie film or indie drama, like you have to go with what your audience is. I would never begrudge anybody from doing that. There's just a lot of movies out there. <laughs> yeah, I just looked up Alamo Draft House, who, you know, has a tendency to get a lot of these. And yeah. they're opening one in Indianapolis, which is cool, but also like skip Indy and just come to Dayton. Yeah, it's still, you know, what, three hours away from us? Yeah, two, yeah. two or three hours. Yeah. In either case, like, there's only so much space. And as much as I would want to see all of the movies all the time, it's like, there's it's just impossible. Yeah. And you have to consider how many people would actually go see them. Here, probably a lot, but it's, yeah. a, it's a risk that you take. It is a risk. And I think the interesting part about this specific film is that on the one hand, I'm bummed that I hadn't seen it previously, that I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater, either because we didn't get it or because I just missed it. But I kind of love having seen When Evil Lurks first Mm -hmm. and then watching this film because I think it really influenced my viewing experience in some really fun ways. Yeah. And I had forgotten a lot of aspects of this movie that ended up tying into When Evil Lurks, which I did end up seeing since the last time we recorded. So this movie is about a neighborhood in Buenos Aires. There's something hinky going on between these four houses it starts out with this really terrifying kind of scene where this man's wife dies and then disappears. And then we kind of get thrown backwards in time to try and figure out how this has progressed. And it has to do with kind of loss and things are really getting shaken up. The entire neighborhood isn't in on it yet, but this group of four houses and neighbors and colleagues and people that they work with or have formerly worked with kind of get roped into this scenario to try and figure out what exactly is happening between these four houses. And most of the actors don't have a huge list of credits. The Commissario, he's the police officer detective. His name is Maximiliano Guione. I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing that right. Yano, who is the former forensic investigator who worked with the detective, played by Noberto Gonzalo. Mora Albrecht, who is the paranormal scientist who comes to assist, played by Elviro Onedo. 
And then George L. Lewis plays Rosentalk. There's also Walter, who's not a main character, but he's sort of a connecting character, I guess you mm-hmm. could say, for the story. Played by Damien Salomon, who also was in When Evil Lurks. He yes. played the younger brother. So yeah, that's kind of the main cast of characters. There are other folks in the movie, but really not anybody that is going to be familiar, I, I would say, to like the average American audience, unfortunately. Right. Or fortunately, I guess, because I will say that this movie is very well acted. It is, yeah. Um, for not having like a huge, you know, name draw in their cast, everybody was really very good. Oh yeah, it's well acted. It's also beautifully shot. Damien Rugna has, I think, established a certain lighting style and shooting style throughout his work, where he tends to favor kind of muted colors. Mm-hmm. And kind of a gritty look. And it's not like gritty in a grindhouse sense, but in a gritty realism sense. Mm -hmm. And also his uh, scoring. He actually scored this film himself. Oh, wow. And so I think you're really seeing, even if you've just watched the two films or Mm -hmm. choose to watch the two that he's kind of best known for at this point, you'll see his style as a director emerging. And it's really distinctive. It nods to a lot of people, but it's really nice. And it's got a very fresh look to me in that it doesn't feel like typical Hollywood horror. I don't know if that is a product of the fact that it's an indie or the fact that this is, you know, a film that was made in Argentina. I don't know as much about the cinema culture there, but it has its own look and feel. And so I feel like it's easier to kind of get sucked into the world of the film and the acting really keeps you there because the actors are all really compelling. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that he does definitely have his own Style, I liken it to Fincher. That's kind of what I'm thinking of right now. And I do want to say that this movie does not immediately strike me as a horror movie. And kind of When Evil Lurks is similar to that. In that the movie sort of plays out as a crime drama almost. A little bit. You know, it's centered around a detective and a former colleague of his trying to figure out these paranormal acts that are happening But the way that the world is portrayed is done so straight, it doesn't strike me as a movie like Insidious, where everything is kind of goofy and like, you know, that you have somebody come in, you know, Lynn Shea, who comes in and is like, yes, this is paranormal. And here's all of the, you know, paranormal like attachment stuff that I'm going to put into this movie. This movie plays it so straight that It strikes me more as like a hard-nosed crime drama versus a paranormal film or a horror film. It's almost got a kind of veneer of Jollyo to it, where it's like, you know, in so many Jollyo films, there's like the hint of like, yeah, this could be paranormal, but it's probably, you know, and it always ends up being like this person sneaking around and imitating the ghost of the family legend, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) This flips that, which Mm -hmm. is like, you know, oh, we're looking for the most plausible criminal answer. And actually, we don't know, you know, it's some kind of some kind of weirdness. So I think there's definitely like some nods. I also think like, I'm so glad you pointed out like that you mentioned Lin Shay, because People kind of compare this to, they, they've said, like, if you like Insidious, if you like The Conjuring, you'll like this movie. And I agree, because I like both of those franchises, but also, like, if you're looking for, like, 
warm, fuzzy paranormal investigators like that are gonna like make you feel good. This is not that movie. No, like this is not Lynchay and Insidious. This right. is not the Warrens. You know, yeah. at the Conjuring universe Warrens. I always have to clarify that. Yeah, these paranormal investigators. You're like, are are they are they okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very it, suspect through the whole film. And Damien Regnan doesn't give a shit about them kids. No. So no. that's the thing with Insidious is like, you know, I'm spoiling a movie from 15 years ago, but the kids are safe. You know, yeah. like at the end of the day, like, oh, there's a big, great family reunion. Everybody's the conjuring. Good. Same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the kids are safe in this movie. And when evil lurks, Damien Regnan does not care about killing a kid and showing it dead and like in pieces yeah in, in gory awful fashion yeah he doesn't pull a punch there yeah and i know that that's a trigger for some people and you know rightly so like dead kids nobody wants to see or like you know have that in their face so go into this movie and when evil lurks knowing that there's some pretty awful depictions of a dead child in both of them and it's not like look it's shocking it's in your face it's like this is something that's meant to destabilize you. Like, yeah. whatever it is that's happening does not care if it's an adult, if it's a child, it's whatever is closest to the entity. It is going to jump into it. It doesn't care. Yeah. And I think the kind of world that Damien Rugna is building between these two films, whether or not they're connected, we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, again, like in comparison to Insidious, to The Conjuring, where there's a malevolent force and we spend a lot of time like trying to convince them or coax them or fight them. We never get to that point mm -hmm. with this movie or in When Evil Lurks, it gets even more complex than that. But right. in this movie, like we never get to the point of coaxing or communicating like you know, let them go, right. the power of Christ compels you or whatever. <laughs> no, this is just more like, what the hell is happening right. amongst brutality, amongst things that toggle the line, I think, between like being, is this paranormal or is this someone or several someones experiencing like severe like psychological trauma yeah and it's kind of both in the long run yeah but yeah we never get to kind of the warm fuzzy familiar place of possession horror where we're like we're summoning the thing or we're forming the circle or whatever it's just bananas the whole time and having somebody who knows exactly what to do that right. is something that you have in the conjuring and in insidious is yeah, the first thing they try might not work, but the next thing they try or like, oh, well, this didn't work. So we know that we need to do this extra thing. We don't ever get to that either. Right. All of the paranormal investigators, of which there are only two, like, let us remember, like, Yano is not a paranormal investigator or a professional. He basically did autopsies for the police department. He's like a paranormal investigator fanboy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, I've read a lot of books. Yeah. It, and he is also like maybe served as a coroner or something. You know, like he knows how to examine a crime scene. We can tell that from the first time that we see the little boy. The first time we see him, the dude is doing all the things like, is right. he breathing? Like, have you taken any photos? Blah, blah, blah. He also is able to determine who saw him, you know, like the little kid and he's looking at his feet and all this stuff. So he is 
a professional. He's just not a paranormal professional. Right. So we have Dr. Albrecht and the other guy who I can't remember his name. Rosentalk. Yeah, Rosentalk. Like, I just keep thinking eyebrows in my head because, <laughs> like, his eyebrows are raised for much of the movie. So there's two paranormal investigators, and Dr. Albrecht is, like, working on the machine, which we'll talk about. And then Dr. Rosentalk is just, like, getting his hand stabbed. But they're not really doing anything. Like, Dr. Albrecht is basically trying to coax a cat out of a wall for the majority of the film. Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> like, she's, like, shining a flashlight in this crack, and then she's doing some stuff. And so we don't have anybody who knows what to do. Obviously, the cop, like... He's not going to know what to do. They're almost more realistic in that regard. Exactly. Yeah. You know, where it's like if you put one of these like yahoos on ghost hunters, you know, like I would say no disrespect to ghost hunters, but come on. Yeah. You right. know, <laughs> in a real paranormal situation, they would know what to, you know, they would right. be doing the same things that these folks are doing, which is like, well, we kind of think maybe this will work. We don't know. Maybe it's a cat in the wall. Yeah. Oh, shoot. There was an actual creature in the wall that just grabbed me and like bit off my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's something that we get like accustomed to in American films is like, oh, this person knows how to fix things. Yeah. They are ultimately the person who, if they don't know immediately, will research it. But most of the time, they're going to know what to do. In this movie, not the case. We have two paranormal investigators and a cop and Yano who barely know what they're doing and they don't succeed. You right. know, to say the quiet part out loud, they don't figure it out and they all die except for the detective. Yeah. You know, the thing I find really interesting, especially given that this is a film made in Argentina, they get into this a little more in When Evil Lurks, not not a super lot, but this is possession or paranormal stuff in absence of religion, mm -hmm. specifically in absence of Catholicism, mm -hmm. which I do find interesting because Argentina is a prominently Catholic country. A priest is never brought in. There is no talk of Satan or demons or the particular kind of trappings of, you know, possession as we know it from the sort of Roman Catholic tradition. This movie is completely absent of that. Yeah. And it's the possession is dealt with from more of a scientific basis, even though the people don't know what they're doing. I thought that that was interesting. There's also no talk of God or being yeah. saved or, you know, like the little boy, like, oh, my little boy is not going to go to heaven or he's not going to be saved. He's going to hell or something like that. We never have anything like that. Yeah. And the investigators don't do that. They don't whip out crucifixes. You know, they don't have rosaries. They're not pouring holy water as far as we know they're very practical and mm -hmm. the way that they investigate is also very practical and that is the thing i think that makes me feel like this is a crime story is yeah. because that's what you see in like a fincher crime movie everything is very straight and dry yeah. you know we're not talking about like getting religion involved or a priest like what you said a church there's nothing yeah. like that very interesting and um kind of new way to show a possession film where it's like this is it's almost biological yeah like dr albrecht mentions at a certain point that there are different realities that are bumping up against one another like an orange she said it's like an orange like the slices in an orange and water can transmute the bacteria or something between those two 
parallel existences. And that's how these things have kind of come through is via the water. And although we don't get much more than that, uh, because Dr. Albrecht is not with us for very much longer after that. <laughs> it's like a biological thing. The yeah. way that she's approaching it is like, this is a bacteria that is infecting us from a parallel existence. Somehow it's gotten here through the water. And that's that's as far as we get. And it's sort of similar in When Evil Lurks. Yes. It, we know that there's some sort of biologic thing that's happening based off the guy from the beginning who's like, very, very sick. And they're like, we got to get him out of here before he dies. And then, you know, the ensuing issues that happen after that, where, you know, dog gets it from clothes and then child gets it from dog and all that stuff. So sort of like a zombie infection, but like way more, hey, we don't really know what's going on. We're not really sure how it works. Yeah, that was one of my notes. I observed that in both this and in When Evil Lurks, Damien Rugna likes to combine horror tropes in ways that we don't traditionally see. Like typically your sort of possession films and zombie films are two like distinct buckets mm -hmm. and they usually don't cross over unless you're in kind of an overblown like horror comedy space where it's right. like we're putting all the things in the thing. But he plays with those tropes in really interesting ways where you have – what we believe to be possession, but it's manifesting almost like a zombie outbreak or vice versa. And I really, really like that. It is akin, I said this with When Evil Lurks, it's more akin to like Resident Evil. Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm talking the games, not the um, the original movies, <laughs> which are their own special little thing. Um, but yeah, like the original Resident Evil games they're like, yeah, they're zombie games, but they're like in certain Resident Evil games, there's an element of possession or demonism there too, or black magic. And so in the same way that those games kind of play with our horror tropes and mash them up in different ways, I feel like he's doing that in this film and When Evil Lurks. Yeah. And he's doing it in a way that's very successful, I think. Yeah. Although I will say that there are lots of folks who did not dig either of these movies. They don't know why people are focusing on his career so much. And I will say that there are parts of this movie that do slow down quite a bit. There's a lot of character building that's happening, a lot of discussions that have to occur between our characters so that we can kind of, you know, move the story along i.e. the discussion that Yano has with the detective about the fact that he was dating the yeah. little boy's mom for a long time. The conversation that Yano has with Dr. Albrecht about how like this has happened to him before, um, which I still want to talk about. So there are some times when this movie slows down. Like it definitely ramps up and yeah. then it slows back down for a little while. Yeah. And I think that that also happens a little bit when evil lurks. We have a yes. lot of character building that's happening and then kind of ramps up and slows back down. But that's another thing that makes me feel like it's a crime story, you know? Detective movies do that too where we have a lot of story building that has to happen and then we go back into like a violent situation. Yeah, and I think we also just as audiences have to remember that especially with, I won't say especially with slashers, but I think especially post like sort of the dawn of slashers in American horror, we have gotten so conditioned in horror and in everything else that like, 
it has to be like action, action, action all the time or it's not a good movie. And mm-hmm. that's just not the case. And that's fine. Like if those are the types of movies you like. But I think as viewers, we have to be open to horror that can slow down for a minute and give us some story because it's often all the more satisfying when things ramp back up. Um, yeah. But I do think we have to be careful about those criticisms, like just because those are the movies that we're used to or that we grew up with, especially like the 80s slashers where it's like, kill, kill, boobs, kill, run, chase, you know, <laughs> and that's an oversimplification. I completely realize that. Right. We do have to like you know, be okay with like, we're going to settle in for some story now or for some character development. I agree with you. I think that slowing down is okay. We have to understand that pacing doesn't always have to be at a fever clip all the time, especially in movies where maybe a horror story wasn't the first thing on their brain when they started writing the story and it became incidental because kind of a parallel that I saw between this movie and When Evil Lurks is loss, uh, Uh ending of relationships, grief, a changing sort of world. And when evil lurks, you know, not knowing exactly what the state of the world looks like from your front door, or in this case, like a situation where you have a changing sort of neighborhood, like Uh you have the detective who no longer lives there. You have Walter who is kind of losing it and have he's struggling He's not sleeping very well. He's requesting help and he's not getting it. And those themes kind of are in both, especially the ex-wife thing, which I thought was pretty interesting. Or sorry, just ex in general. Because I don't think that the detective was married to Alicia. I find that interesting that a common thread between the two of them is a relationship that has ended, but there's still some care or like a kid kind of in the middle, at least one child in the other movie's case, two So I have to wonder why those themes continue, because a big part of this movie is the fact that the detective comes back to help his ex and figure out exactly what happened to her son. That's sort of the, although it's not the inciting incident, it's the reason why the rest of the events in the movie have happened. Well, and with When Evil Lurks, I mean, that is like the bad choice that kind of sets the whole film in motion, which is, you know, the older brother saying, no, I have to go get my kids, Yeah, you know, whereas I kind of feel like if he had just let the kids be and escaped, half the movie wouldn't have happened. 100%. <laughs> he is the bad guy in the yeah. movie, for sure. Yeah. Even though he didn't mean to be. Right. Let's talk about the machine that Dr. Albrecht has. Yeah. So I had forgotten this part, and I'm glad that I watched When Evil Lurks so recently before I saw this one again, because I would not have remembered that that's a thing. Dr. Albrecht brings this strange, esoteric-looking device, I guess you could say. We don't know what the name of it is. She never elaborates on it. Nobody else is in the presence of her using it. But it looks like it has a pendulum, like a magnetic pendulum. It has what looks like an astrolabe, I think. It looks kind of like the planets aligning. And then it has what looks like an airlock for brewing. And she pours some stuff in there, and it, like... You know, at certain points, the position of this like weird astrolabe like moves and then the magnet moves. It's really cool, but it looks very similar to the machine that the doctor that the younger brother goes to see in When Evil Lurks 
Mirka. Has. Yeah. I just looked up her name. Okay. I yeah, I couldn't remember yeah. her name. Mm-hmm. But she's like some sort of paranormal witch slash person that was called in to solve the possession problems in what seems like years prior. Because yes. people like her don't exist very often. She's sort of like a rare breed. Either they're gone or they don't practice anymore or it's like not necessary as much. And there's kind of some implications too in When Evil Lurks that um, they have been kind of weaponized or corrupted or whatever by the government. Yeah. You know, because at this point in the story, again, I'm talking as if these films are connected. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we can make the assumption that they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if we're going to get into it, like, is Terrified a prequel to When Evil Lurks? I think so. Yeah. But... Before we elaborate more on that, yeah, so Myrta is some kind of paranormal person, and she kind of talks about this turning in her role and when she left that role, and she seems like very parallel to Dr. Albrecht Mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah. Like maybe they started the same way or even knew each other or worked together. It definitely seems like it because she does seem like a professional, you know, the younger brother knows her because they had a relationship and he seeks her out again. Another thing I was just thinking about is the electricity aspect, which I will get back to again. But she has something very similar that she's trying to set up, although we never get to see her successfully use it in When Evil Lurks because it gets broken. So in this movie, it's like, oh, okay, we sort of have this precursor thing happening. And the story is a little bit more messy, but I think it's because the cast of characters that we have to learn everything through also don't know what the hell is going on. Right. I mean, they know some of the facts of the matter, but I don't think that they really... Because otherwise, they would have just gone in there and been like, all right, cool, this is what it is. And then, you know, go about solving it. They never really get to that point. We're sort of in the exploratory phase as where when we get to the events of When Evil Lurks, it's kind of like already known how these things work. We've been so trained by zombie films that, you know, there is an incident or, you know, something explodes, something leaks, or there is a pandemic and people, you know, en masse start getting sick and there's instant response. That's what we assume going into When Evil Lurks is like we know that like there's this situation that is known to society. It's happening like this. These are the conditions that people live under is knowing that this like they call it like a demonic possession is possible. However, what this movie kind of shows us is maybe something like that doesn't happen in one big boom. Maybe there's like a weird thing in this town and then there's a weird thing in this neighborhood and they're all connected. We just don't know it yet. And that's kind of the point we're coming into at Terrified is like, here's this seemingly isolated, weird incident that maybe was one of many that eventually blossomed and became the world we are living in in When Evil Lurks. Yeah. And the way that electricity kind of affects both of those movies is very similar in that in this movie, although not entirely because it doesn't always happen, but there's like this darkness light thing that's happening where you can see certain things through the point of view of dark and you can't see them in the light. So at the beginning of the movie, when we see this affecting Walter initially, the thing keeps pulling the plug out of his lamp and or making it so that his lamp doesn't work in general or his electricity goes out. And 
we also see that in When Evil Lurks, that electricity is like bad and kind of fuels them. Yeah. That's why Myrta lives completely off the grid. She has no electricity at all, which on the one hand, like, okay, cool. The electricity fuels them, but also like, wouldn't that make your house more dark? But that's why she has a bunch of candles. So yeah. (laughs) I do also like the aspect that in this movie, you have a single male who is both in a psychiatric hospital after a traumatic event, because often you don't see that depicted in a movie, especially not somebody who is like actually still rattled and doesn't really know what he saw. Most of the time, if you see that, it's like, oh, no, I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. I saw something crazy and I know it sounds crazy, but I'm not, you know. No, this dude is like, no, I have no idea what happened and my wife is gone and I saw something very traumatic happen. And then we also see parallel to that, we see Walter sort of losing his shit and trying to ask for help and not getting anywhere with it until it's too late, arguably. And even our detective, he could have very easily been portrayed as like, you know, yes, he's kind of our protagonist. He's our audience proxy. He's the one we're following throughout this, you know, at a, starting at a certain point in the movie. But it could have been very easy to make him like the noble hero, blah, blah, blah. But he is very complicated. And he says over and over again, he's like, I'm getting ready to retire. I have health problems. I just need to like retire, but I'm trying to do right by, you know, this other person and their kid. He is noble, but he's also very conflicted and very flawed. Yeah. And he's not like our typical, like, shiny, squeaky clean, like, I'm going to have a moment of redemption hero. And we see that in When Evil Lurks, too. I like this sort of trend of, like, not making the men just these, like, paragons of, like, air quotes, perfect masculinity. Like, all of the men are flawed and hurting mm-hmm. in a in a way that we don't often see in yeah. cinema and scared you yeah. know that's that's yeah. the other thing is like they're often for a male hero in a horror film is a part where he's like oh, i'm not scared anymore right. i know how to fix this no these dudes are uh they are petrified they are absolutely frozen there are times when they can't do anything they put themselves at risk based off of the amount of fear that they're feeling and they can't they can't get over it. They just don't have the capability of doing it. And I think that that is a really important thing to show in a horror movie and possibly one of the other reasons why I feel like this movie doesn't feel like a horror film uh-huh. is that there's not that point of like clarity. Oh, this thing is defeatable. I know how to fix it. And they move forward with that. In this case, it's like burn down the house, like just start over. Well, and also, like, it's a very resigned burn down the house. Like, you can tell he he doesn't want to go back. He tries everything in his power. And you can, like, see he never says it, but you can see this moment on his face where he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. I guess I have to go burn down the house, you know? Because there's always going to be somebody who goes back in there and not knowing how this evil sort of manifests itself or moves between people the very last thing that he could think of to do is to just destroy yeah and then he runs away yeah he's a fugitive because yeah. they're like oh there were still were still people inside there and in that regard we don't know as a viewer we're not sure okay dr albrecht says don't believe all that you see tonight yeah so as a viewer we don't know is what the detective saw real you know are all these people dead and that's why they're saying that 
there were still people in there, like they were alive or something, and he was just seeing like really messed up stuff. Or is what we're seeing real and they assume that the detective did all of that to those people and then burned down the house? Yeah. You wonder if the camera survived, you know, like Dr. Albrecht's camera or Walter's video recorder, like, did those things survive? Is there proof of this thing? Did it get rid of it? Obviously, if you choose to believe that these two movies are linked, uh, this movie and When Evil Lurks, then... Likely, no. Yeah. Burning down the house didn't do shit. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's in the water. I mean, the water is connected to, uh, it was in Walter's front yard, so it's connected to city water. Yeah. And Yano mentions that this has happened to him two other times. Now, we don't know if those are similar situation. We have no idea because we don't get filled in on that. But some other weird wonky shit's happening. So. Yeah. It's very possible that this is a not an isolated incident. Well, and it's kind of nice that we never know with Yano either, because he is such a paranormal fanboy. Right. Is there's no moment of revelation of like, oh yeah, you have the sight or yeah. you or you know, everything that you've experienced in the past has been leading up to this moment. Like we never know if Yano is just somebody who to really like wrap the X Files into it, as I am known to do, somebody who wants so badly to believe that they're able to make that leap, whether it's actually real or not, right? Or whether he did experience something. Yeah, yeah, I really like that part about this film is that you don't get any hard and fast answers. You yeah, don't, you don't really know. The only thing that you know is that the, this thing persists. Whatever right. it is, it persists, and some people can see it you know, in the light and some people can't and nobody is safe. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's all that you know at the end of it. But nothing is fixed. Nothing is resolved. Nothing is named. It's just kind of this like persistent evil that's occurring among everybody. And yeah. it, it can travel. We also learn that towards the end of the movie is that the dude at the beginning, I can't remember his name, Clara's husband who finds her kind of like being smashed in between the shower walls at the end of the movie, he's being questioned by a whole new set of investigators. Except for Detective Guzman. Right, exactly. And he is the one who sees the thing. And it's like, is by seeing the thing that gives it power, makes it real. And that's why it's able to affect the world and environment around it. Because like a poltergeist, it can totally move furniture, it can yep. stab people, you know, through their hands and stuff. So... Is it that seeing it and being afraid of it gives it power or does it exist no matter? Right. And why does it choose to go to certain places? So we don't get any answers. And that's kind of cool. I like a movie that doesn't answer and wrap everything really nicely for you. I do, too. Because as I said about When Evil Lurks, you know, I've been thinking about it and talking about it since I saw it back in November. And now having like... I feel like this movie as perhaps a piece of that puzzle. Now I'm just like, the wheels are turning. And I'm like, ooh, well, what if it could work this way or it could work this way? And I love a movie like that. You know, I know that's not everybody's thing. I know some people really like to have just everything spelled out and presented to them by the filmmakers and then tied up in a neat bow. But I love it when my imagination can run wild on something. And, you know, a week from now, two weeks from now, I'm going to be like, 
oh, but then that one part, you know, like that's to me, that's a great experience. Yeah. And these movies are also like only an hour and a half. I mean, yeah. we're not talking like a three hour movie. This is like a tight 90 minutes. And we have this really cool sort of detective story. We approach it like a detective story. Mm -hmm. And then we have this like very creepy horror movie vibe that's rolled into it. And then at the end, we don't get any good answers. It's sort of similar to that movie. I can't remember what it's called, but it had Denzel Washington and Jared Leto in it. Oh, um, the little things or small yeah. things? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, where it's like, is Jared Leto really the bad guy? Is Denzel Washington, like, making shit up in his head? Is it, he the killer? Right. Yeah. Like, we never really quite suss mm -hmm. it out, and we don't get hard and fast answers. This is really similar to that, except we have some, like, straight-up paranormal shit happening. I really like that. I like a movie, although I don't like Jared Leto, I like a movie <laughs> that trusts itself enough to be like, I don't need to backfill every little thing. Yeah. And I don't have to wrap up all parts of the story, which I agree with. Yeah. I, um, I also agree. During the course of this, Juliet mentioned to me that there was talk when this movie came out that an American studio was going to remake it mm -hmm. and they wanted Guillermo del Toro at the helm. Maybe potentially still happening. We don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> here I go. Controversial opinion. I really am tired of the trend that we as Americans, as Hollywood people, have to take great foreign horror films and remake them yeah. that we can't just you know, uplift great horror films that are made elsewhere. We have to then go like put our American whatever on them and remake them never as well as the original. And it bums me out that that was a possibility for this one. Guillermo del Toro is an interesting choice, you know, that said, I just, why? Why yeah. would we do that? So that was in 2018. They were talking about it. Del Toro was in talks with Searchlight to do it. And I suspect that went by the way of the pandemic, as many things did. But when I was doing some research on IMDb, when you look at Damien Rugna's upcoming projects, there is Terrified is on there again as like, a writing credit, like for an upcoming pre-production project. And there are no other details other than English language. And I'm oh. like, please, God, no. <laughs> now, he was working on a sequel. I don't know if that sequel became When Evil Works. Right. That's my headcanon, is that's what happened. But... God, I hope they don't remake this or When Evil Lurks. Like, we just... I just don't understand why that's what we're prioritizing. When there are so many really, really good American indie directors out there making original stuff. Like there's so many good ideas in this country that don't get any support or don't get noticed by studios or get budgets or whatever. And then there are so many great horror films from other countries that are fabulous and just deserve more attention and more of a platform in this country. Like, why do we have to remake things like that? That just, it really bothers me. I agree. I don't necessarily think that everything needs to be remade all the time. I also think that about older movies, although I'm always willing to give that a chance. I do like to see remakes, but if it's going to be just like appropriating a story and redoing it with an American studio, then I'm like, meh. I will say that some of the digital effects need a little bit of help. Yeah. In this film. Yeah. 
specifically I'm thinking about Yano and the cabinet. It's like kind of weird, although I think that the idea comes through. Yeah. I do wish that some of the digital effects had a little bit of polish to them. I think that some of the problems with the digital effects probably have to do with a budget. Yeah. That's the only thing that I will say that works against this movie is that parts of it could probably use a little bit of polishing up with in terms of effects. But that's not to say that that couldn't happen now in the current movie, you know, right. just like remastering it and making those a little bit more polished because in, you know, seven years of filmmaking, we've come quite a long way in terms of digital effects. And I think that they could be made a little bit better. But that's not to say I think that a total remake is necessary. And I also don't think Guillermo del Toro is the dude to do it. I think that Guillermo del Toro has a great eye for practical effects. I think that he can curate the shit mm-hmm. out of a, a you know short film anthology. The Cabinet of Curiosities on Netflix was great. I liked many of those stories, and I thought it was really cool that he was involved with that. But I definitely don't think that he would be the dude to remake this whole movie. Yeah, I agree. I think it would turn into something like Crimson Peak, and then I'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Or, like, we would have more of a romantic storyline or, you know, romanticized storyline. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we don't need that. No, it's not. You know that there's care between a lot of the characters, but nobody gives a shit about, like, yeah. them having a happy ending. Because nobody has a happy ending. Right. I like that. And I don't think that that needs to be changed. Yeah. We just need to zhuzh up some of the effects. Because that is a big criticism of the film, is that some of the effects don't land. And it's like, bro... They spent every dollar that they had to make that dead little boy look super dead. Yeah. And it works. (laughs) It absolutely works. Oh, yeah. It's fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to see, like, I don't even know who, like, Andrew Garfield as the detective. You know? No, that... All of Andrew Garfield, but no. Why? Why did you even say that? (laughs) You know what? You can't unsee it. Right? You know, his character actually, for some reason, it reminded me of the character in Train to Busan. Not the dad, but the dude who's kind of a bruiser. Like, Oh, yeah. I think he, in real life, was a wrestler, like a pro wrestler. Uh, Like wrestling, like Olympic wrestling Uh versus like WWE. But the character sort of reminded me he's like gruff and kind and he wants to help but also like a little selfish and and flawed and so it kind of reminded me of that but it just makes me want andrew garfield less (laughs) in this movie like the only acceptable person to play that role in a remake is rahu kohli oh okay yeah (laughs) now that yeah that's i mean he can be in anything yeah that's true I don't know who I would cast. If you had to cast it in the US, who would you who would you do as the detective? If you had to. If I had to. other than Rahul Kohli? Yeah. Um Oh god. I don't know. Everybody I'm thinking of that I like as an actor, I'm like, "No, they're not right for that role." What about Batista? Oh, Dave Batista. Oh, Dave Batista. I think he could do it. Like kind of gruff, got some yeah. got some health problems, you know. Yeah, he um, could. It's a possibility. I don't know. I just want to see him in a lot more stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who else though. Shit, what's his name? The guy who plays Laszlo in What We Do in the Shadows. Matt Barry. Yeah, I was... except I wouldn't be able to get over the voice. Right, I know. <laughs> 
He's possessed. (laughs) Just like something really goofy, like Stephen Toast style. No, I don't think Matt Berry is right for the role. I was just trying to think of like dudes who are a little bit more rough around the edges. And then, of course, Jack Black came to mind. I was like, yeah, I don't think Jack Black can do it. Dudes that are like a little bit more rough around the edges that maybe don't get a shot as much. Like movies where there's a gruff detective and then Harrison Ford gets cast or, you know, somebody like that. I need to consult the hot possum TikTok for (laughs) casting choices. (laughs) For casting choices. I think that the other ancillary characters could probably be filled in pretty easily, except for maybe Yano. I really liked Yano's character. I liked Yano. I don't know. I will say that uh, they mentioned Highlander at the beginning of the movie. I'm like, and I was thinking at the beginning, how come more people aren't talking about Highlander in general? Like, where's our Highlander remake TV series slash movie? Yeah. That is a franchise, I think, that could lend itself well to being resurrected at I this point. I think that's one that's been rumored many, many times over the years. I, I feel like it's one that keeps coming up in conversation and has had starts and stops and all of that. Call up Henry Cavill. We all know his ass loves nerdy shit. Yeah. Call him up and be like, hey, whatever juju you did to get Warhammer to get produced, like, why don't you lend some of that to Highlander? Yeah. Maybe you could be in it. What are we covering next time? I think next time is February. Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. <laughs> Good thing you're not in front of a mirror, Juliet. Jeez. Yeah, I know. Yeah. How, how could you? How could you be so irresponsible? I was pretty irresponsible. I mean, my iPhone is kind of a mirror, so I might be screwed. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Just text me if something goes wrong. Later. Yeah, yeah. We get to do Candyman, and I love Tony Todd a lot, and I also love Virginia Madsen a lot, and I wish that she had been in more horror movies. I agree. Over yeah. her career, we only get to see her a little bit now and then, and I'm just like, man, I really miss you. Yeah, I'm excited to do this one. You know, this one, I count among the ones that I feel like kids growing up in the late 80s and early 90s found really, really legitimately scary. Oh, yeah. Like, you'd talk about Freddy, you'd talk about Jason, but Candyman was like, ooh, that one's like really actually scary. So this will be fun to revisit this one. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.